Our scripture this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Holy God, we open ourselves to your spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts expectant for your presence. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jordan. I am one of the ministry staff here at Fifth. I'm so happy that you all made it. It is beautiful outside, but that was intense driving here. And I have like a seven-minute drive. So thank you for being here on a holiday weekend, um, no less. And Happy New Year! That's a really corny joke. But I couldn't help myself. I know this feels like the very end of the year for us, and it is if you're talking about the year 2019, but today is the start of Advent, which is actually the first day of the new year in our church calendar. So it's not really a corny joke at all. Christians are a peculiar people, and we mark time in more ways than just trips around the sun. Our liturgical rhythms, I believe are just as real as the rhythms of the earth. If you grew up in certain Christian traditions, this may be old news to you, but if you're new to church, or if you came from a less liturgical tradition like I did, this may be the first time that you're hearing about it. What we culturally call the Christmas season, it's not actually Christmas time, it's Advent, which begins four Sundays before Christmas and as a season of anticipation. Those 12 days of Christmas that we all love to hate to sing about, those don't actually start until December 25th, and they last until Epiphany. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Like I mentioned, I grew up in an expression of Christianity that didn't really engage the church calendar or much liturgy in general, although it was deeply committed to Jesus. And I have to say, the liturgical calendar is one of my favorite parts about the Reformed Church. I did grow up with an Advent calendar with little doors that we'd open, with little Christmassy ornaments that we'd hang on the tree every day, because we were counting down until baby Jesus, or really to presents. <laughs> I didn't discover until much later in life that anticipating the birth of Jesus is really only half of what Advent means. 
The first records of Advent date back to the fourth century. And by the sixth century, Advent was a normal part of the established church rhythms. So historically, the season of Advent was actually patterned after Lent in that it was a period of repentance and fasting, which really could not be further from how we typically spend the weeks before Christmas. Now, I'm wrapping gifts, I'm watching It's a Wonderful Life, I'm getting my tree today, so this is not me shaking my fingers at all of you for being merry and bright. But we are missing out if the only way we mark this moment in time is with merrymaking. The joy and the delight of Christmas should be a relief to us because it stands in such contrast to the state of the world and to the state of human hearts. We need a savior, not just one lying in a manger wrapped in cloths, but also reigning with justice and peace over all of the universe for all eternity. This is not a sermon about consumerism or the commercialization of Christmas. Those are good points to be made, but I'm not making them today. This is a sermon about the apocalypse. I said that anticipating the birth of Jesus is only half of Advent. The other half is anticipating the end times. Advent has historically been a season of repentance and fasting in preparation both for the birth of Jesus and for the return of Jesus. So if you are confused about why our scripture today is about the end times when I'm up here surrounded by Christmas trees, maybe you're a little less confused. This Advent, we will be talking about what it means to keep watch for Jesus' coming his coming in Bethlehem long ago, and his coming again at the end of the age. Christians are an already, but not yet, people. Already redeemed, justified, clothed in righteousness, but not yet sinless, sanctified, or clothed in glory. We are caught between the memory of Christ walking the earth and the hope for Christ walking the earth again. Advent is a microcosm of this, living in the tension, yearning for a Messiah who came and who is to come. Caught between memory and hope, not unlike how we approach this table in remembrance, communion, and hope. Scripture has urged us to keep watch for the, com the coming of the Son of Man, both in his birth 2,000 years ago and in his return in glory. Advent is not a season of passively waiting, like you might wait for a bus to arrive or in line at the grocery store. In Advent, we are called to keep watch, alertness, readiness, preparation, anticipation, vigilance, and yearning. Advent whets our appetite for the return of Jesus because it asks us to consider how much is still not the way it's supposed to be. 
both in the world and in our lives. So let's listen to the Gospel of Matthew. Here's how chapter 24 begins. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What follows is Jesus telling his followers about what is to come, how many will face persecution and death, how he, the Son of Man, is coming. He does this sitting on the Mount of Olives, which seems maybe like a throwaway detail to a reader like me, but to his Jewish disciples would have been really significant because of this prophecy in Zechariah about a day in which the Lord would stand to save the people of Israel from the nations that had surrounded it. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Before their very eyes, on the Mount of Olives, with his feet planted there, Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy, telling them, he himself the Lord, about the day of the Lord's coming. There's another prophecy about the last days that they would have been familiar with and which we heard just a few minutes ago at the lighting of the candle. It comes from the book of Isaiah. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills and all the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What the disciples were hoping for, whether they fully grasped it or not, is what we are hoping for now. Not ultimately a triumphant battle, although God will declare ultimate victory over sin and death, Not ultimately retribution against the wicked, although God will judge the unrighteous. Ultimately, we are hoping for total restoration of the relationship to our creator and a permanent peace to be brokered among the nations at the throne of God. Never ending shalom between all the nations once we've streamed to the house of the Lord laying down our weapons of violence and taking up tools of cultivation. In response to the promise of return, theologian Stanley Hauerwas says that disciples of Jesus must learn how to take the time patiently to hope in a world 
that thinks it has no time for hope or patience. But it's easy for us to succumb to two pitfalls, waiting with hope, but no patience, or waiting with patience, but no hope. Without patience, Hauerwas says, those filled with hope threaten to destroy that for which they hope. A lack of patience in response to the second coming can lead to a counterproductive obsession over the end times. For some, this means attempting to predict exactly when it will happen, something Jesus said we cannot do. Even Jesus does not know when it's going to happen. He made it very clear. For others, this means trying to set the stage for Jesus to return or even to manufacture it, which is the same kind of wanting to be Godness that got this whole world in trouble in the first place. A lack of patience can create a general neglect of or disinterest in the present, which is of course excuse me, of course true about a lot of things besides just the second coming. I am not a particularly patient person and I spend a lot of my thought life six months or even six years in the future. That in my own life is an example of having hope but no patience. Some Christian evangelism movements that focus heavily on rapid conversions but fail to provide long-term discipleship can be an example of this. Um, a disregard for issues of inj injustice or suffering can be an example of having hope but no patience. If you'd asked those very first Christians when Jesus was coming back, they almost certainly would have said within their lifetimes. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul actually addresses this. The one who was unwilling to work shall not eat. This verse is often misquoted to endorse certain political or economic positions. But Paul's main point here is that there were some Christians who were so certain about the imminence of Christ's return that they just quit their jobs and they gave up their responsibilities because why bother when he's coming back tomorrow? And their prediction, of course, was wrong. Jesus did not return in their lifetime or in all the lifetimes that have since passed. There is a reason why Jesus told us that we can't know when it will happen and why scripture as a whole uses such cryptic language about the end times. It's not for us to extrapolate some kind of apocalypse itinerary. Hauerwas says that Jesus' use of apocalyptic language is not an invitation for his followers to predict the future, but to help his disciples learn to live in the presence of the one who came, that they might learn to live in peace in a world of war. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is the inclination to waiting with patience but no hope which really is just waiting to die. Hauerwas says that without hope, the patient threatened to leave the world as they find it. It's this disposition that drives Jesus' reference to the great flood of Noah, where he says, in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen 
until the flood came and took them all away. Eating, drinking, and being married are three things that I do every single day. <laughs> so am I in trouble? <laughs> well, not so fast. Theologian Frederick Dale Bruner says that the sin of Noah's generation was not wedding parties. It was nonchalance about God. The evil here is the immersion in the everyday without a thought for the last day. Attention on Christ's return does not negate the value of everyday life. It gives it greater purpose. What Jesus says next in our passage actually affirms attention to the everyday life in light of the second coming. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the handmill, one will be taken, the other left. In the field, grinding with a handmill, why, these people are at their jobs when Jesus returns. The problem has never been participating in life. After all, wasn't that God's primary command to Adam and Eve to cultivate the garden, to be fruitful and multiply everyday things? The problem has been participating in daily life purely for its own sake with no hope for anything else, which is to say with no hope for the consummate reign of Christ. Where we can go awry is by focusing solely on the work of our lives, divorced from the work of the kingdom. And what does the second coming have to do with Jesus in the manger? Well, everything. Jesus came to this earth to create a path for us to reach the Father so that we can have eternal union with God. We accept the discomfort and tension of not knowing, hoping for what we cannot see, trusting that Christ will make good on the promise he made 2,000 years ago to come again. The second coming will defy our expectations, but Jesus told us we can't miss it when it happens. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Baby Jesus also defied expectations, making good on prophecies from lifetimes ago. Who would have expected the Messiah to come after an apparent 400 years of silence from God in the form of a vulnerable baby? born to an unwed teenage girl in a culture that could have stoned her for that, to a meek carpenter father in Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? In a barn, alone? And his agenda was not military conquest or an ascent to political power but was centered on healing the sick, dining with the outcasts and pariahs of society, defying the religious leaders, challenging the rich, choosing powerlessness, and giving himself over to a brutal and humiliating death at the hands of the state. Like the Messiah coming in the first place as a baby, his return will subvert our expectations. 
But if we are earnest in seeking him, we won't be able to miss it. If you're familiar with Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, you know that Magi in the east saw the star over Bethlehem and they knew and they came to worship Jesus. Herod also saw the star and knew, but he wanted to maintain power and he committed genocide of children as a result. The shepherds in the fields to whom the angels announced the birth of Jesus, they got it and they came to worship him. But the political stakeholders and religious leaders of the day who felt that their power was being threatened and who were hoping for a different kind of Messiah resisted and opposed his life to the point of killing him. Friends, if we long for the coming of the Messiah solely because we want to behold him in his glory and worship him forever, his return will not disappoint. So what does it mean to embody the anticipation of Jesus coming into the world? Are we filled only with warm, fuzzy, glowing nativity scenes? Or are we filled with desperation and yearning for a savior because we stand in such need? Advent is like Lent because both liturgical seasons ask us not to hurry to the joy, rushing past our own discomfort, but rather to acknowledge the present darkness and let it weigh on our hearts. Because before our faces are lifted to the sunrise of Christ's illumination, we must contend with the dark. Creation is groaning. The world is falling apart. So how shall we then live? Well, we ought neither ignore nor obsess over the second coming. To some degree, we wait the way a pregnant woman waits the way Mary waited for baby Jesus to be in her arms. Not knowing exactly when, but knowing that it will happen, preparing the freezer meals, organizing the nursery, taking the prenatal vitamins, doing the yoga thing, packing the hospital bag. At the same time, pregnancies have an estimated due date, and we do not. Expectant parents make no plans the days leading up to that due date. And if you're like me, you go for long walks and try not to dirty too many dishes and be as freshly showered as possible at all moments. But we don't have an estimated due date. We don't know when Jesus is returning. And if we're like the people who have come before us for the past 2,000 years, we might not see it happen. But we can't put our lives on hold and avoid dirtying the dishes. So what are we to do? That kind of waiting is not what God has called us to, to avoid dirtying the dishes. We have been given work to do in the meantime. Build the church, feed the hungry, plant a garden, seek the lost, visit the prisoner, do the laundry, preach the good news, house the homeless, raise babies, fast and pray, tend to the sick, throw parties, 
We are supposed to live in expectation of it, an assurance that it will happen, but we are not supposed to know the details. It's what Bruner calls sanctified ignorance. It is not for disciples to know ultimate times or seasons. Our whole attention must be on Christian mission. God has very clear instructions for us while we wait. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and make disciples of all nations. God has invited us to participate in building the kingdom on earth. And it is faithful and right for us to respond with diligence. But let's be clear that God is God. We are not. We cannot expedite Christ's return by being extra faithful. And we can't discourage Christ from coming at all by slacking off. It's only for the Father to determine. Earlier in this chapter of Matthew, during the same conversation with his disciples, Jesus says that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Will be preached. Will. It will happen. Endurance says Stanley Hauerwas, is the way of the disciple between the time of Jesus and the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom throughout the world. God in all sovereignty has asked us, fallible, flawed people, to join him on stage for the grand drama of salvation. What an honor. This is an exciting invitation, not some kind of threat or bribe like you've got to finish your green beans before you get dessert. Keep watch for the Spirit's movements with eagerness to respond, recognizing that we are not the main protagonists in this story, and it is not ours to shoulder the burden of responsibility or receive the glory of achievement. Both of those things belong to God and were secured on the cross of Christ. Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, the bishop of the Moravian church in the 18th century, he's got a very cool story, you should look it up. He famously said this, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. If those aren't words to live by, I don't know what are. Keep watch for opportunities to share the gospel and to love your neighbor, recognizing that your life is finite and seek no credit or fame except that that which is ascribed to Jesus. Keep watch with alertness, readiness, preparation, expectation, vigilance, and yearning. For the Son of Man is coming, and there is the loving of our neighbors to be done. That prophecy from Isaiah concludes with an invitation. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
The light pierced the darkness when Jesus was born and will dispel every shadow forever when he comes again. Keep watch with endurance for the dawn will break and there is work for us to do while we wait out this long night. And be not afraid of the dark for the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, pray with me. Christ, you are the light of the world and in you there is no darkness at all. And yet we are so heavily burdened by the prevalence of darkness in the world, we are nearly overcome by shadows, many of which we ourselves are casting. Teach us to hope. Stir up yearning in our hearts to see your light radiate into the deepest valleys of our lives. Teach us patience as we receive our daily bread. We long for you to gather up your church from the ends of the earth and into your kingdom. Even so, come Lord Jesus, amen.